Greetings once again, one and all. Laszlo Montgomery here with another China History Podcast. Today we're going to try and finish the 14 years of Wang Mang's reign during the Xing Dynasty and then all 197 years of the Eastern or later Han. That will bring the Han Dynasty to an end and then in the next podcast we'll continue on and look at the Three Kingdoms period. We left off last time with Wang Mang taking over from the last emperor Ping Di who came to the throne in October of 1 BC. Ping Di dies in February 6 AD. Did Wang Mang have him killed? Some say yes, some say no. In any case, if this emperor was nefariously done in, he wouldn't have been the first and for sure not the last. Wang Mang. Some liked him and said he was a competent official and later emperor. Some didn't take to him so kindly, and you have both ends of the spectrum as far as what history has handed down to us about him. He certainly lived in controversial times, and he ran into his first controversy immediately when it came to picking the successor to the deceased Ping Di. What to do? If he picked a competent heir, the right age and all, then his days as regent would be over, and with that so would his career. If he picked a child, then at once the imperial family and all their relatives, hangers-on, and high-up officials would point a finger at him and cry foul. It had been over a century and a half since Empress Lu usurped power for her Lu clan by putting miners on the throne to rule through. But the memory still lingered, and Wang Mang had to consider his options carefully. So Wang Mang chose Liu Ying, the great-great-grandson of the Emperor Xuan, who died in 49 BC. Also, he faced some early opposition from those who knew exactly what Wang Mang was up to. Ultimately, he prevailed, thanks to his political survival skills, clever use of propaganda, and the help of his formidable and long-lasting aunt, who was the Grand Empress Dowager. After all, the Han Dynasty had clearly been in decline, and the good old days under Gao Zhu, Wen Di, Jing Di, and Wu Di were long gone. Han Wu Di had been dead for almost a hundred years. Anyone could see the mandate of heaven had clearly shifted. So Wang Mang decided that he was going to be the main man. January 10th, 9 AD, Wang Mang goes for the gold and declares an official end to the Han Dynasty. He then proclaims himself as the new emperor under a new dynasty called the Xing Dynasty. Xing means new. The new dynasty. The Han nobles didn't like this, of course, and rose up against Wang Mang, but they were all outmaneuvered and reduced to being commoners by 10 AD. Wang Mang was firmly in control. He kept the capital at Chang'an. Over the next 14 years, Wang Mang, a dyed-in-the-wool Confucian, tried to rule justly and virtuously and attempted to become a champion of the peasants, who in the first decade of Anno Domini were not faring too well. There's nothing like a little wealth redistribution to make you popular with the peasants. Land was massively redistributed from landlords to peasants, grain was confiscated by the state, and sold at equitable prices to the peasants from state-owned granaries. Like Chairman Mao did in the 1950s, land was taken from the landlords, broken up, and passed on to the peasants. An income tax was enacted that attempted to make the tax burden more fair, or less fair depending on whether you were a have or a have-not. Some have called Wang Mang China's first socialist leader. The entirety of his reign was filled with controversy. 
And there was deception after deception perpetrated in order to boost Wang Mang's legitimacy. But history is always written by the victors, isn't it? He was ultimately overthrown, and rather than go down in history as a great reformer, or at least someone who attempted real reform, he ended up as the great usurper. It's no secret that many of his reforms were simply populist and introduced merely to enhance his power. And in the end, messing with the established system of the time, whether you liked it or not, ended up causing a free-for-all amongst those loyal to Wang Mang who found themselves with a certain degree of power and authority, and in a perfect position to take personal advantage of these reforms. By 12 AD, Wang Mang's reforms had done more harm than good, and even he had to start backpedaling on everything. Besides this, the Yellow River, known to occasionally change course every now and then, did so, which caused widespread flooding and havoc. China had been at peace with the Xiongnu since 51 BC, at the price of treating them as equals. But Wang Mang came up with a plan to neutralize them once and for all, and all this did was stir up the pot and create disorder where there had been relative peace. It wasn't looking good for Wang Mang, and if ever one could say the mandate of heaven was shifting, this was the time. By 18 AD, you had a full-scale peasant uprising. So bad had things become. Enter the Red Eyebrows, or the Chermay. The Red Eyebrows, as their name suggests, had eyebrows that were painted red. They were initially a secret society operating mostly out of Shandong and the north of Jiangsu, who grew rapidly in the wake of all the perhaps well-intentioned but failed policies of Wang Mang. The uprising grew fast and soon became unstoppable. The Chermay were organized and Wang Mang's forces were not. In addition to the Chermay, there was another center of rebellion in the south, in and around Hebei and Hubei, led by the Lulin. So bad had times become in China that there started to be calls for a restoration of the Han. Between the Chermay, floods, and other natural disasters, coupled with incompetency from the Xing dynasty generals and the calls for re-establishment of the Han dynasty, Wang Mang's grand vision for the dynasty he founded was starting to look dismal indeed. It all came crashing down for Wang Mang in the summer of 23 AD at the Battle of Kunyang, the Kunyang Zhejiang. Here the main Xin army was annihilated. Once word of this defeat spread throughout the land, everyone rose up, and in all the chaos, Wang Mang was killed, decapitated, and his head was stored in the equivalent of the imperial archives for 200 years. And so ended his dreams of transforming Chinese society and creating a perfect world of Confucian literati ruling benevolently. Amidst all this chaos, destruction, natural disasters, famine, and popular unrest, there were two remnants of the Han imperial Liu family who were able to take advantage of these trying times and reassert themselves as the best possible alternative to all the misfortune brought about by the usurpation of Wang Mang. Foremost among these were the brothers Liu Yan and Liu Xiu, and their cousin Liu Xuan. Only Liu Xiu was considered popular and a competent leader, but when the Han was finally restored in 23 AD, it was the rather unpopular Liu Xuan who was made emperor and ruled rather poorly as Han Gangshi Di.
He was mainly supported by the rebel Lulin elements. It was sort of inevitable that the rebels would rally around the House of Liu since they had ruled previously and had more legitimacy than other contenders. So this Emperor Gangshi, well, he wasn't any good. And he didn't have the full support of everyone as there were competing loyalties divided up between the brothers Liu Yan and Liu Xiu as well. Emperor Han Gangshi ended up doing away with Liu Yan amidst all the strife, and this left Liu Xiu, who was really the only one who had broad support and was respected for his leadership capability. Emperor Gangshi moved the capital to Luoyang and began to take steps to consolidate power and get everything in order after what had been a long period of killing and destruction. But in the end, there was immediate dissatisfaction with this newly restored Han Emperor and his sheer incompetence in how he ran things. And while he was trying to sort things out, Liu Xiu, who he had spared, well, he was quietly working behind the scenes to avenge his brother's death at the hands of this already very unpopular and newly restored Han Emperor. In the meantime, Emperor Gangshi moved the capital back to Chang'an and tried to fill the vacuum left by the defeat of Wang Man. You've probably noticed the capital since earliest times kept moving back and forth and back and forth between Chang'an and Luoyang, but clearly he didn't have the right stuff, and those at the imperial court and those who surrounded him quickly saw this emperor was clearly incompetent and surrounded himself with officials who were extremely abusive of their positions of power. In short order, he had alienated himself from everyone, and it was clear to all that this Emperor Gangshi was not worthy to hold this position. The Cherme, or Red Eyebrows, were still around at this time in 25 AD, and Liu Xiu, who had taken a position given to him by Emperor Gangshi, bided his time north of the Yellow River and waited for the Cherme, who were rising up against Emperor Gangshi, to do their worst and depose this emperor. He waited for the right moment. Amidst all the utter chaos and fighting between Gangshir's forces, the Chermei, and other forces trying to seize control, the end ultimately came for this titular head of the dynasty, who reigned, or sort of reigned, from 23 to 25 AD. Liu Xiu had declared himself the new Han Emperor in 25 AD. He certainly had some legitimacy, as he was directly descended from the Western Han Emperor Jing Di, who had ruled a century and a half earlier during the Golden Age of the Western, or former, Han Dynasty. Amidst the civil war that was raging, Liu Xiu, a brilliant military strategist, defeated his various competitors for power, as well as the extremely unpopular Chermei, who, with their red eyebrows and all, more or less spent all their energies pillaging and creating havoc amongst the populace. It took him till 36 AD before he had everyone soundly defeated and was able to begin to consolidate his power. He set the capital up in Luoyang again, which was east of Chang'an, and thus began the Eastern Han Dynasty, also called the Later Han. He set himself up as Emperor Guangwu, Actually, he had already declared himself emperor in 25 AD, but it took till 36 or 37 AD before he was fully in control, and it defeated all his enemies, not to mention the Chermei. Han Guangwu reigned until 57 AD and was succeeded to the throne by one of his many sons, who became Emperor Han Mingdi. This emperor's reign was clearly defined by the introduction of Buddhism to China. 
We'll have a separate podcast to look at this great event, but in short, Emperor Ming supposedly had this dream about a golden man who his advisors had said was the Buddha of India. A delegation was sent to look into this, and this is how the whole thing started. I won't get into this now, but just know that it was during this period in history that the ball got rolling as far as Buddhism spreading to China. In addition to the introduction of Buddhism in China and its rapid acceptance by both the imperial court and the people, Emperor Ming's reign, along with his son and successor, who reigned as Emperor Zhang, ushered in what was the golden age of the Eastern Han Dynasty. This period of the second and third Han emperors, Ming and Zhang, was collectively known as the rule of Ming and Zhang, or Ming Zhang Zhi Zhi. This was a period of relative peace and competent administration. In fact, the Eastern Han had a good seven decades before all the signs of the loss of heaven's mandate started to rear its ugly head. Alas, all this peace and relative prosperity of Emperor Zhang didn't last too long. The peoples who inhabited the fringes of the empire, most notably the Qiang people, began to revolt and cause all kinds of disturbances. By the time of Emperor Zhang's death in 88 AD, things were starting to fall apart again for the Han. However, there were still 132 years to go yet before the Eastern Han fell. During this period, the eunuchs came into their own and went from being castrati, charged with guarding the royal harem, to actual participators in the daily administration of the palace. For the last century of the Eastern Han period, they earned their well-deserved reputation from here on after as self-serving meddlers and manipulators of emperors. And for certain, we'll take a nice long look at the history of the eunuchs and the roles they played in Chinese history. By 143, the government was in complete disarray, and the treasury, through a series of disastrous policies, was more or less depleted. In 153, there was a locust infestation that had disastrous consequences and led to widespread suffering. To add to this, the Yellow River had yet another one of its uncontrollable floods. By 184, it was all over for the Eastern Han. The remainder of this dynastic period was one of uprisings and gradual decay. Foremost among these uprisings was the Yellow Turban Rebellion, or Huangjing Zhiluan. The emperor at this time was Hanling Di, who was the great-great-grandson of Emperor Zhang, who reigned during that brief golden age of the Eastern Han. During this time of Emperor Ling, the eunuchs were thoroughly in charge of affairs at the palace and were doing their worst. Like the popes in Rome would do hundreds of years later to raise funds, Emperor Ling sold offices in the government, which led to a massive influx of corrupt and self-serving officials who took matters of state from bad to worse. On top of this, Emperor Ling was himself essentially corrupt and exceptionally wasteful, even amidst a financial crisis. He was the wrong man at the wrong time, and from this point on, things began to fall apart rapidly, and the groundwork was being laid for the period that followed the Eastern Han, the period of the Three Kingdoms, immortalized in the great literary masterpiece San Guo Yan Yi. The San Guo Yan Yi, or the Romance of the Three Kingdoms, which we'll look at in the next podcast, opens up with the Yellow Turban Rebellion. While the Chermay were characterized by their red-colored eyebrows, the yellow turbans wore these yellow-colored scarves around their heads. 
Essentially, this was a peasant rebellion. As I mentioned, you had locusts and floods that made things impossible for the peasantry. The imperial court offered little or no relief except to raise taxes, conscript men to build fortifications along the Silk Road, and increase the general misery of the populace. The yellow turbans were led by the Taoist sorcerer, Zhang Jiao, and his two brothers, Zhang Bao and Zhang Liang. They caused no small amount of grief for the Han central authority, or what was left of it. Three great military men were called in to defend the eastern Han against these forces. Enter Liu Bei, Cao Cao, and Sun Jian. It took until 205 to put this rebellion down. By this time, the eastern Han was in shambles and in no position to rule. Emperor Ling had died in 189, and there was the usual messy succession with competing forces vying for the throne. These military commanders, who were called in to deal with the rebellion of the Yellow Turbans, seeing the state of the Han Empire, never disbanded, and each took advantage of the power vacuum to consolidate their power in their respective lands. The eunuchs figured prominently during this time. Immediately after Emperor Ling's death, you had what was known as the Ten Attendants, or the Shi Chang Shirt. These were ten eunuchs who collectively usurped power to run the government. What followed was a massive amount of intrigue as these ten attendants and their allies and proxies battled for control of the throne against the palace forces who were trying to do away with them, led by the main general He Jin and Yuan Shao. He Jin was the elder half-brother of Empress Dowager He, the surviving consort of the deceased Emperor Ling. He Jin and Empress Dowager He collectively took control of the Eastern Han upon the death of Emperor Ling. He Jin began to move against the eunuch faction. He called the powerful warlord Dong Zhuo to the capital in Luoyang to deal with the eunuch faction. But the eunuchs were no pushover, and ultimately, before Dong Zhuo arrived at the capital, well, they made fast work of He Jin, and he was beheaded in 189. I can't emphasize enough how chaotic things were by this time. The emperor who survived Hanling Di, named Emperor Shao, was a mere boy. In fact, short-lived emperors who were children and who were quickly deposed and never ruled were often named Emperor Shao. There's a lot of Emperor Shaos in Chinese history. Shao simply means few, young, or small. So you had quite a few of these small emperors who were put in power only to meet some kind of bad ending, being the pawns of whoever the losing faction was. Yuan Shao was able to successfully move against these palace eunuchs and killed most of them. Some escaped the massacre and took the boy Emperor Shao and Crown Prince Xie hostage. This didn't work out for the eunuchs involved in this plot, and they ended up having to later commit suicide. Dong Zhuo, who had a well-deserved reputation for not following orders and being rather ruthless and self-serving, arrived at the capital and had both the Empress Dowager and the young Emperor Shao killed. He installed Prince Xie as the new emperor and used him as a puppet to rule through. In 190, Yuan Shao marshaled the forces to defeat Dong Zhuo in Luoyang. Dong thereupon picked up and moved the capital back to Chang'an, but not before trashing Luoyang before he left. But Dong Zhuo's luck ran out, and he himself ended up getting assassinated in a plot in 192. 
The former crown prince Xie, who now ruled as Emperor Xian, was fought over by competing factions for his usefulness as a puppet. By 196, he became the puppet of the northern warlord Cao Cao. Cao tried to unify the empire under his rule, issuing various edicts through the puppet emperor Xian. He had the north under control by 207, having defeated the superior forces of Yuan Shao. But in trying to bring the south into the fold, he had two nemeses in the form of warlords Liu Bei and Sun Quan. By 208, Cao Cao was named the imperial chancellor of Han, technically serving under his puppet emperor Xian. In that same year, he made his move against the south, against Liu Bei and Sun Quan. Now, we're going to come back again on another day and look closely at Cao Cao. He is one of the most colorful and beloved characters from Chinese history. In addition to founding one of the three kingdoms that survived the Eastern Han, he is remembered for his legacy as a poet, for his skills as a martial artist, and for the many writings he left behind. We'll save this for another time and just give a general overview of his role in this very complicated but fascinating time in Chinese history. Now, if this is starting to sound complicated, it is. I'm really glossing over so many details and leaving out so many characters and events. This time is a real favorite for a lot of these Chinese serial dramas and movies where the Eastern Han was fading and the dynasty was transitioning to the Three Kingdoms period. It's a time of incredible complexity with so many historical figures and events. It was a time of great intrigue, shifting alliances, and endless battles. In the winter of 208-209, this was the time of the big showdown between Cao Cao and the allies Liu Bei and Sun Quan. This was the epic battle of Red Cliffs, or Chirbi Zhan, in modern Hubei on the Yangtze River. If the numerically superior army of Cao Cao could defeat the southern forces of Liu Bei and Sun Quan, he could then reunite the north and the south of the country under his rule, of course, and bring an end to the decay that had defined the eastern Han at this time. Everything started off well for Cao Cao. He scored a great victory against Liu Bei at the Battle of Changban. It was actually after this defeat that Liu Bei formed the alliance with Sun Quan, to jointly defend against Cao Cao's army. The Battle of Red Cliffs was where the showdown took place. Now, there was a movie made of this great battle named Red Cliff, or Chirbi. It was directed by John Woo, who is one of the most famous and renowned directors in Asian cinema, especially for his action films. He directed Face Off with Nicolas Cage and John Travolta, if you remember that one. He also did the second Mission Impossible film and Wind Talkers, as well as Paycheck with Ben Affleck and Uma Thurman. These were his principal contributions to Hollywood. But it's his Chinese films that have really established his greatness in cinema, and maybe his magnum opus was his movie of The Battle of Red Cliffs that was released in two parts in 2008 and 2009, since it was so long over four hours in length. The reason I'm telling you this is because it's a little difficult to encapsulate the whole battle in a couple paragraphs of this podcast. 
So let me just cut to the chase and encourage anyone who loves Chinese cinema and who would like to get absolutely smothered in details about every character from this historical moment in history and every skirmish that happened to go out and rent or buy this epic masterpiece. It's in Chinese with subtitles. The Battle of Red Cliffs could be summed up perhaps in saying that Cao Cao did not emerge victorious and through a combination of wrong strategy, bad luck, and a brilliant ruse by the Allied General Huang Gai, Cao Cao, with his much greater numbers, greatly overestimated his strength. He was also the visiting team, so to speak, as his support base was in the north, and by venturing down to the Yangtze, he was not as familiar with the territory and lacked the sympathies of the inhabitants there. The initial battle, which happened at Red Cliffs, went poorly for Cao Cao and his army, which by now was not in the best of shape, having had to march hundreds and hundreds of miles and unfamiliar territory in poor conditions. So they battle at Red Cliff, and Cao Cao ends up retreating to a place called Wu Lin, not too far away, to the north of the Yangtze. Liu Bei and Sun Quan's combined forces retreated to the south of the river, and they faced off on opposite sides. Cao Cao's navy was moored along the north bank of the Yangtze. He had made a strategic blunder of tying all his ships together into one single line. Why he did this is uncertain. Sun Quan's most brilliant commanders were Zhou Yu and Huang Gai. Huang Gai took one look at this situation and came up with the idea of preparing a ruse that led Cao Cao to believe they were going to surrender or defect to his side. The story goes that when Huang Gai brought his plan to his immediate superior, Zhou Yu, it is said that they both had thought up the same strategy simultaneously. This strategy called for Huang Gai to send word to Cao Cao that he and his army were defecting. Cao Cao fell for it. As Huang Gai started to sail his navy across the Yangtze towards Cao Cao's navy, all tied together in a single row of ships, Cao Cao was already beginning to taste victory. But as soon as they got within a short distance, Huang Gai launched the plan that he and Zhou Yu had both come up with. In fact, the ships were not filled with defecting soldiers, but instead, massive amounts of kindling and other highly flammable substances. The ships were set ablaze at the perfect time, and in no time at all they were bearing down on Cao Cao's fleet. Well, as Huang Gai's ships, which were now ablaze, bore down on Cao Cao's helpless navy, the northern general surely knew he had been outsmarted. The plan worked perfectly, and Cao Cao not only had his navy destroyed, but had to make a hurried and disastrous retreat, all the while being chased by the forces of Zhou Yu and Liu Bei. The end result was that Cao Cao's plans to unify the South with the North under his rule were dashed. And from this point forward, the country was very much divided between North and South. Cao Cao retreated back to the North, where his power base was, and the allies Sun and Liu held their domains in the South. In fact, after the Battle of Red Cliffs, these three powers dug into their respective lands, and what came out of this were three kingdoms— Cao Cao controlled the north, Sun Quan the south, and Liu Bei the west. Cao Cao died in the spring of 220 AD in Luoyang, and his most capable and eldest son, Cao Pi, took over from his father. Now, all this time, the Han Emperor Xian was still on the throne. He didn't have any power, but 
Nonetheless, he still ruled as emperor. Cao Pi pretty much forced the emperor to abdicate in his favor, and once Han Xiandi did this, Cao Pi gave him some honorary title and kicked him upstairs, and then he became the emperor Wei. Liu Bei heard this news, and he then declared himself emperor of his own kingdom of Shu Han. Sun Quan, he held out for a while before deciding what to do. But with the demise of the Eastern Han in 220, from this point in time until China was unified under the Qin Dynasty in 280, you had what became known as the Three Kingdoms period, forever immortalized in the great novel Romance of the Three Kingdoms, and subsequently in a hundred movies, operas, TV dramas, and even video games. You know, in researching this last decade of the Han Dynasty and all the battles to fill the power vacuum of the toothless Han emperors, I can't overemphasize how intricate and complicated it is with so many generals and eunuchs and courtiers, alliances, broken alliances, battles, treaties, and the like. To read through a history of this period, you really need a program or a scorecard to keep everything straight. If you feel up to it, I encourage you to read this great 14th century work by Luo Guanzhong, which starts off just prior to the Battle of Red Cliffs and takes you through till the end, when China is unified again in 280. It's 120 chapters and a thousand characters who play roles both large and small in this epic historical novel, one of the four great classical novels of Chinese literature. The other three being the Shui Hu Zhuan, Xi Ji and Hong Lo Meng. That's the Water Margin, Journey to the West, and Dream of the Red Chamber. So we end this third installment of the Han Dynasty overview with China now divided up into three kingdoms of Wei, or Cao Wei, in the north, which is of course led by the family of Cao Cao. Then you have the state of Shu Han in the west, mostly in what is now present-day Sichuan, This was the kingdom of Liu Bei. Last, you had the kingdom of Sun Wu in the south and the east of China. This was the kingdom of Sun Quan. Three kingdoms, Wei, Shu, and Wu. And in the next podcast, we will look at the six decades of this period, and I'm sure you'll be sitting on the edge of your seats until then to see who among these three great generals and their descendants emerges victorious. I haven't even mentioned Zhuge Liang yet. In the next podcast, I'll introduce you to this great and beloved historical personage from ancient China. But until then, this is your host and humble narrator, Laszlo Montgomery, signing off from the 38th floor of the Upper House, high above the Marriott Hotel in Pacific Place in Hong Kong, wishing you a fond farewell until next time. Feel free anytime to send me a question or comment through my website at www.chinahistorypodcast.com. I'll be back in lovely Claremont, California, Friday night, and as I slowly recover from massive jet lag, I'll have plenty of time between the hours of 2 and 6 a.m. to write next week's show. Take care, everyone, and I hope you'll listen in next week to another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.